Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, everybody. I hope you got a chance to check out the podcast yesterday with Aaron Smith-Levin. We talked about his future uh, upcoming city council run and the state of Scientology in Clearwater and what's going on with the city council there and how much Scientology's influence exists in that city and cleared up a lot of questions and and maybe some uh, confusions out there. So I hope you guys will check that out. Unfortunately, as you can see, my desk is a little emptier than usual because a key piece of equipment for my channel kind of shut down and we were not able to do our live stream this week, our critical conversations. I've got my fingers crossed that it will be back. I had to ship the equipment off out of state to get it fixed and I hope it gets back this next week in time for me to do the critical conversation show for this next week. Uh, No promises yet because I don't know when it's going to come back, but as soon as it does and I can get set up again, we will be back in business on our live show, which we do each week. I really, really love doing that show and I love interacting with you guys. So it's really bumming me out that I I need to cancel it for a couple weeks, but um, or at least for this last week, uh, like I said, hopefully we'll have it fixed. Um, it, it's just I can't take phone calls without without my my board here, so uh, my roadcaster. So anyway, that's what's happening there. But I can still do these, and I can still do interviews with people, and so those are still going forward at full speed. All right. Uh, in fact, more uh, very interesting interviews already in the can for coming the next couple weeks on the podcast, which I think you guys are going to be pretty interested. In. It's pretty interesting stuff. And of course, we have your questions for the week. So let's go ahead and get straight onto them. Oh, nope, nope. Sorry. One other thing I got to put in. I usually do this at the end of the show, but I got to put it up at the beginning every couple weeks just to make sure everybody knows. Um, one, I have a book out there. It's called Scientology A to Zenu. And uh, I'll throw it up on the screen here. If you don't know or haven't seen this, uh, then I got to plug it to you because it's, uh, it's a real good survey and question answering uh, thing for Scientology. If you're at all interested in any of that, check out my book. And I have to say also that um, this show and my channel is fan-funded 100% by you guys. So if you're enjoying my channel, if you're enjoying the content I produce and it's informative, interesting, and educational to you, then consider... Um, throwing some love my way through Patreon every month or through, uh, you know, you can do one-offs through PayPal. Uh, Links to those are in the description section of this video. All right, let's get on with your questions. Sequoian. Steve Hassan talks about the cult persona, which is the obedient conformist persona built on top of the true persona of the member individual. It is the cult persona which enables the person to commit destructive actions toward oneself or others in a way he or she normally would not, in the name of God, planetary salvation, or whatever is indoctrinated. I'm very curious about your take on, and your own struggles with, this cult persona. How did you retake control? What happened to it after that? Did it just disappear, or can you ever still sense it? Because I assume it was such a strong force in your life for a long time. I'm asking because some ex-members, such as Marty Rathbun, seem to have remained in an inner conflict slash limbo between past and present selves. 
All right. Thank you very much for this question. I'm glad to give my uh, own ideas and insights about this. Specifically, I don't really think of this cult persona thing as a separate personality. The way you describe it in the question here gives me the impression of an almost like a schizophrenic kind of separate, you know, personality, split personality thing. And um, that's not really how I see it. It's, uh, it's, it's a little more complicated, <laughs> unfortunately, especially for second generation cult members, people who were raised in under under the roof of a, you know, very high control authoritarian group dynamic situation, um, you know, with very, very strict rules and guidelines. And they never really had a chance to develop anything else except that persona. And what's that about? Well, it's, it's an interesting thing. So what we really are talking about when we're talking about a cult persona, at least as far as I'm concerned, is um, we're talking about a value set or a belief set, which includes not just some ideas or some beliefs, but an acculturation, a, a set of social values, manners, etiquette, rules, guidelines, ways you act, ways you don't, things you can say, things you can't, things you can think, things you can't. All of this is, you know, acculturation is, is, is a set of values that we, that we all have. We've all got various acculturations, various sets of, of personalities, you could say. You can frame it that way, but it's really just this set of values that we carry around with us that we apply under certain circumstances. And when you're in a high control group or a, an authoritarian totalist group, you know, these words are used because we're trying to get across the idea that they are very overwhelming and overbearing on a person's psyche. And they affect every part of how the person thinks or acts or looks at the world. And in fact, even in, it even impinges on or affects their ability to perceive the world objectively. Um, it, 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 there's a filtering process that occurs with a lot of these values where inputs of sight and sound and smell and whatnot end up going through these filters of what is and isn't acceptable, what is and isn't good, what is and isn't bad, right? And and, um, and this is all part of this package. So, so it's kind of really sort of framing a whole set of, of ideas and, and morals and, and these kind of things uh, and worldviews and beliefs into a package which we would call a, perso a persona or personality. But it's really just a matter of kind of semantics and convenience that we use wording like that. It's not like your brain or your mind is divided up this way. It's, it's a lot more complicated and nuanced up here. So um, that all kind of being said, in other words, it's kind of complicated. Um, we, we try to simplify this by, by making the analogy of it's like a different personality. And so using or extending that analogy um, for myself, you know, coming out of Scientology really means coming out of a cultural mind space, you know, a cultural space where the Scientology culture has that, that bubble world that we talk about has all these separate values and ideas. And this whole us versus them is kind of what sets the boundaries or the borders of this bubble world. You know, we're us and they're them outside of this boundary that we've set up. And so the personality is when you come out of that bubble world, when you stop living in that culture, 
we, the, the cult, I, I'm using the word culture on purpose here, right? Because cult and culture are very, very connected ideas. A cult is, in a way, a cult is just a very extreme or very focused culture. You know, it's very small, it's tiny compared to the larger culture in which it exists, which generally has wider, broader values and beliefs and more accepting and more tolerant ideas and beliefs than the little tiny subculture or cult that we go on and on about. Okay, so um, when you come out of that, you're in this bigger, broader culture. And so now... All those values, ethics, morals, beliefs, and ideas, and the language, and the thought patterns, and the action patterns that you've engaged in, the rituals, the rites, the practices, all of that stuff now changes because you're in this whole different milieu. You're in this whole different world. And the culture's different. So you have to now change and acclimate to this new situation. All of us experience this. Every time we move, we experience a reacculturation of some kind. You're in a new environment, new setting. You know, when we get a new job, we experience this kind of thing. So you can stretch that persona analogy to this too. And you could say, well, in one job at McDonald's, you have a McDonald's persona. And when you leave McDonald's and you go work over at Burger King, well, you're going to have the Burger King persona and you're going to have to adopt that. And that's going to have a slightly different values. There will be commonalities, but there's also going to be differences. And we harp on those differences and, and complain and talk about them all the time. Uh, so that's kind of how this works. As far as me retaking control, first it was learning about all this. Uh, it was about it was about figuring out oh that this was something that is that is part of my upbringing, part of my life experience was that I was acculturated to a very extreme belief set and totally bought into it, right, and viewed the world through that lens. So once I knew that that's what had happened. You know, reading Hassan specifically with Combating Cult Mind Control, reading, you know, you know Singer and Lalich and various other authors with Cults in Our Midst and other works, you learn about the process of what happened. And you go, oh, okay, yeah, persona, got it. And then you go, okay, well, if that's the case, then I can start subscribing to different value sets and different ideas. And I don't have to keep carrying around these ideas and these, you know, these action patterns of how I should behave. I can start shedding some of that. So the very first step of taking control or retaking control is first learning that it, that there is something you have to take control over and that, that there is something there that affected you in a very deep way. And you need to figure out what the anatomy of that is. Um, then, um, yeah, what happened to it after that? Did it just disappear? Can you still sense it? Well, this is what we talk about when I'm when I mention, you know, the language, for example, or some of the ideas that the language represents. The PTS like PTSness, right? Every time somebody is sick in Scientology, you assume the person is a potential trouble source. And there must be some suppressive person or suppressive element and restimulation in their environment. And if you've been watching me for long enough that all of it, all that just makes sense, yeah, okay. Um that's that's straight Scientology. So if you uh, believe that, if you subscribe to that, then of course, every time when there's an accident or illness or injury, you're going to be looking around for the SP. And it took me quite a few years to sort of stop thinking that way. But first, 
at, you know, acknowledging that I was thinking that way, that that was an ingrained habit that I'd had and that I needed to actively sort of push back against it when it cropped up. Oh, yeah, Scientology. Okay, good. Well, that's not actually true, and I don't have to think like that. And after you do that enough times, and it's active, you have to really practice it. It's not a passive thing. You know, when these, when these culty ideas or cultic language or, or, or action patterns come up, you have to actually be self-aware enough to go, oh, right, yeah, okay, that's, yeah, that's, that's the cult talking. That's not me right? It's just, it's a, it's an old habit and you have to actively undo those habits by learning new ones. It's kind of how we work. So, um, so you adopt new ways of thinking or new ideas uh, to take over the place of the old ones. And you learn to stop using the Scientology language because it's really not helpful to understand how things really work. The Scientology language locks you into these thought patterns and these action patterns. So by, you know, sort of caught, you know, consciously working to undo that language and not use it, you overcome the cult persona, if you see what I mean with all this. So that's kind of how it works, and that's been my experience with it. And I stressed there the, the need to consciously work on this because it does take learning, and it does take work. It's not something that just happens to you over time, naturally or organically. Um, in fact, if you don't do something about the habits that you have, whether they're cultic thought patterns or smoking or drinking or whatever it is, you know that if you don't do something conscientious about it, that you're going to continue acting that way. Or you're going to continue thinking that way or saying the same things over and over again. So it takes that conscientious work. And I, and I stress this because you mentioned you know, people like Marty Rathbun, who are people who are not interested in doing that work, who pretend to do that work or think they're doing that work, but really are reinforcing some of the, the cult stuff. It's, it's hard. This isn't easy to do. And it's not like, it's like any of us are naturally inclined to figure it out. It's, it's um, you know, there's a lot of people, especially with Scientology beliefs, who think psychiatry and psychology are full of shit, have nothing to offer, who have very weird ideas about spirituality, um, who have some, you know, coming out of Scientology, you're going to have some pretty goofy ideas about science, about uh, religion, about tradition, about Buddhism. You're going to have all kinds of crazy ideas about Buddhism. And... Um, and a lot of other things. And so if you don't work to overcome that, you might think, oh, well, yeah, I'm just, I, I don't use the Scientology language anymore, so I'm all good. And it's like, well, no, there's a little bit more to it than that. I mean, that's a good thing. I definitely saying, you know, it's not like, that's not nothing, but there's more to it than that. And I don't think, um, you know, in, in my passing knowledge of, of Marty Rathbun as a person, it doesn't appear to me that he's really done that work. And, um, and so he and other people who come out of these situations still cling very, very strongly to some of those cultic ideas. And, um, and, and unfortunately, a lot of those ideas are based on or just false premises or are just totally wrong. Uh, they are arbitrary ideas from L. Ron Hubbard, and they're not really, you know, very true. So, uh, so people can continue to get into all kinds of trouble trying to make those things make sense and make them true, and uh, and that that's where you get 
trouble. So that's that. I don't know. That's pretty much all I can say about that. Tiger R. I'm trying to figure out the logical implications of billion-year contracts. Since Scientologists take all of that at face value, they should expect to see reincarnations joining the Sea Org. Does the Sea Org ever try to recruit people by claiming they signed a contract in a previous life? Did Hubbard try to develop a tech to locate the reincarnations of Sea Org members the same way Vajranya Buddhists have methods for finding the next incarnation of a tulku? Conversely, can people claim that they don't have to sign the contract because they already did in a previous life, maybe if they uncovered past life memories that fit the narrative? Is there any tech or procedure for that specific situation? If that's not the case, does it mean every single Sea Org member ends up blowing, quote-unquote, when they die? That would be a depressing thought for a Scientologist. All right. Well, first off, congratulations on trying to apply logic to billion-year contracts. Good luck with that. And I'll, I'll gladly take up your questions here. Um, because, yes, Scientologists do expect that there will be what they call returnees. And this isn't like some Hubbard word. It's just sort of this, this sort of informal word that came up along the line in the culture. And that is that, you know, people who come back are returnees. Remember, the motto of the Sea Org is, we come back. And they all have or share this sort of uh, myth that Hubbard sort of put out there to the original Sea Org members that the Sea Org has been around before under different incarnations as loyal officers from the OT3 narrative, etc. And that these band of Thetans have been trying to, you know, do good in the universe for a very long time and this kind of nonsense. So, um, at least that's the implication from Hubbard's story that I get. Um, anyway, so, yes, it is thought that there will be returnees, people who have been in the Sea Org before. I contemplated whether I was a returnee at one point. I thought I might have uh, worked under Hubbard in my last lifetime back on the boat, which would have made me a past life Sea Org member, um, according to my recovered memories from my auditing sessions. But there's not really a whole lot of importance put on that. What they really care about is sign the contract, let's get to work, right? How and why you go about doing that doesn't really matter so much as that you do it. The contract is never considered a legally binding anything inside the culture of Scientology. It's a symbolic gesture. This is understood. Um, at the same time, there is this idea of future lives and a, and a literal idea of serving Scientology for a billion years. So they're symbolic in that nobody's expecting anybody to ever take this piece of paper and go hold it against you or use it against you or, or something like that. It's not really the spirit in which it's done. It's not a, it's not, you're not signing a contract when you sign a Sea Org contract in the same mindset that you're signing a contract for an auto loan, you know, that you're going to be paying this back and it's going to be this sort of drudgery and it's going to be sort of difficult. You know, it's not, it's not like that. It's, I'm signing this symbolic thing that I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm committed. It is certainly a full lifetime commitment. That much you are definitely doing when you sign that contract. You know, the next lifetime and the lifetime after that, I mean, yeah, sure, yeah, of course I'm coming back. You know, I mean, it's not like we, we didn't think we were, but 
you just don't really think about it too much. It's one of those things where I, the reason you see me kind of hemming and hawing and going around on this is because you guys think a lot more about this than we ever did. <laughs> And I think that's kind of the point I'm trying to make with all this explanation is there really wasn't a lot of thought given to it. It's just Scientology's good. I have to do this because if I don't, I'm contributing to the world going to hell in a handbasket. And that's kind of the that's kind of the amount of thinking that's done when people are recruited into the Sea Org. That's really what you're trying to trying to push on the person and get across. And I recruited a lot of people into the Sea Org doing exactly that. Okay, um, but you're asking great questions here, so I'm 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 not uh, I'm not knocking you asking me questions about it. I'm just letting you know you're thinking about it way more than we did. Um, Okay, did Hubbard try to develop a tech to locate past Sea Org members? No, there's nothing like that in Scientology at all. Um, there are hopes, there are aspirations on the part of Scientology parents that their kids might be returnees and even past life Sea Org members. Sea Org members aren't having kids, so that's not part of the picture. You know, they're, they're not the Sea Org isn't self-propagating that way. Um, so no, so there's no there's no mechanism in Scientology to um, hunt down or find a past life Sea Org member. They will use an e meter in auditing to confirm or verify your past life memories, but the the point of auditing isn't really to do that. So there's not like a test, or nobody's going to put you on a meter and start asking you sharp and pointed questions about your past life Sea Org experience, unless they think there's some moral transgressions connected with it. In which case, they're doing a security check, which we is kind of a separate topic. Um, can people claim they don't have to sign the contract because they already did? No. No, nobody's trying to get out of signing the contract that way. Um, and if you and if and if some Scientologist says, "Oh yeah, no, I already signed one of those," <laughs> they're gonna go great, report for duty, right? It's like, let's go. <laughs> I mean, it's not like that's gonna get you out of anything. It's only gonna get you more into it, you know. Uh, is there any tech or procedure for that? No, there's not. Um, but no, that doesn't mean that Sea Org members are blowing when they die. It's, it's what what happens when a Sea Org member dies is a is a is a memorial issue, a memoriam issue is written about them and their accomplishments in their life. And, you know, they became a Scientologist at blah, blah time, and they joined the Sea Org, and they did this, and they did that. And it's usually about a page-long issue. At least this is what they did for years when I was still in it. I don't know if they're still doing this. But when a Sea Org member died, you would get one of these in-memoriam issues. And it was usually written locally and then approved and sent around to everybody. And at the end of it, traditionally, and this was kind of a Sea Org tradition, I don't know where it came from, but it was, you know, kind of legit. This is what would happen is the, at the end of the memoriam, it would say, Joe Blow is granted a 20-year or 21-year leave of absence. And so, you know, the idea amongst all the Sea Org members reading it being that Joe Schmo is dead now and they're going to go get another body. In fact, by the time I'm reading this, they probably already have because it happens pretty quick, you know, to our way of thinking as Scientologists. And so they're going to have... It's a powerful enough thing that we kind of thought, well, they're going to have little little bells ringing. They're going to have little inclinations of things, and they'll find Scientology again. 
and they'll come back, right? And uh, the proof of that is look at those of us who did. <laughs> so this is this is kind of how it's thought about in in the Sea Org, and and that's really I mean maybe other people in their Sea Org experience thought about this differently. I can really only share what went on in my head, but um, but yeah, that's 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 all I can say about that. Dave Hendrick. It's well established now that L. Ron Hubbard spent the last few years of his life on the run from the FBI after Operation Snow White and became a sort of Howard Hughes figure. He was hugely paranoid, was injecting strong sedatives when he died, and was drinking heavily, resulting in pancreatitis that almost killed him a few months before he died of a stroke in a camper van. I've even read that he had a massive golf ball-sized cyst on his forehead. Now, I'm sure within Scientology, this is not the grisly picture that is painted of Hubbard's twilight years. So how exactly is the grim last decade of his life depicted through the airbrushed, Vaseline-smeared lens of Scientology? Is Operation Snow White even addressed? All right, Dave, thank you for this question. Uh, it's a good one. Uh, what we have in Scientology, of course, is a hagiography, okay, a, a life uh, story of a religious figure in academia is referred to as a hagiography. It's a specifically for religious, the life story of a religious figure, usually told and an exaggerated, or it's understood that there are going to be exaggerations, lies, half-truths, and nonsense throughout okay and that is and so what that's what you're basically asking about and 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 specifically with hubbard um what scientologists are told is that hubbard moved off of management lines and and went off on his own because his research required full-time attention from him and he didn't want to be distracted by management and running Scientology. He originally pulled back from management in 1966 when he started the C Project, which became the C Organization. And he legit did, or at least reportedly legitimately, I mean, nothing, you know, I have to take everything with a grain of salt that I've heard from within Scientology. But it seemed to be the case that in 1966, Hubbard truly tried to pull himself off of management, turn the job over to a bunch of other people, and they did not make good on pulling in the money. And within a year, Hubbard was back into managing Scientology organizations. Now, whether he never really left or not, I, I, I couldn't say right now, but that's the story. Hubbard then used the C organization to take over Scientology management and run it for many, many years under the C org um, sort of uh, structure rather than the non C org structure he had originally set up in the 60s. So this goes on through the 1970s. Operation Snow White happens. Hubbard's, you know, that the whole thing tanks because the FBI finds out about it, raids Scientology in 1977. This is a huge fiasco. These are tremendous legal bills. Hubbard is now, uh, you know, really fugitive. He was already, you know, evading taxes and stuff. But this was, this was much more serious. He was an unindicted co-conspirator. His wife was an indicted conspirator co-conspirator. And so um, Hubbard had to disappear. And they had just moved to Clearwater and were trying desperately to get Hubbard's name cleared so that he could be a public figure again out in the open. 
But with the fiasco of Operation Snow White, that became a bit of a pipe dream and he had to disappear. So a new management structure was set up and I've talked, you know, we've done videos about this already. And Hubbard then used that new system and structure to pull the same thing he did in 1966 where he said he was pulling himself off the lines. And uh, he wasn't really, though. He still very much was managing Scientology from uh, this camper van <laughs> from his Bluebird. And he hit the road. First, he did the whole, first, he did sort of the, the covert disappearance with uh, the Sea Org where he went to Hemet or San Jacinto and, and set up Golden Era Productions and, and, you know, made some films. But then I think 1980 or so, he disappeared, uh, really disappeared with two Sea Org members, Pat and Annie Broker, and nobody knew where he was. Uh, physically, he was gone uh, for years until he settled in Creston, California at the ranch there. And, uh, how many people knew he was literally physically at that location? A very, very, very tiny handful. In fact, I don't think very many people knew at all until, um, until the very, very later years, but I, but that, that's not really super important right now. What's, um, what, what the Scientologists are told is that he was off doing this research. He was off researching and he was writing. This is when he wrote um, Battlefield Earth and the Mission Earth books. And this is when he discovered or researched all of the upper OT levels above OT7, and uh, which I guess is OT8 and beyond. Because remember, Scientologists think that there's levels all the way up to OT15. There aren't, but they think there are, and they think that that's what this time was spent working on and documenting. And if you watch the L. Ron Hubbard death event where his death is announced and Pat Broker talks about the uh, research Hubbard was doing, well, that's, that's pretty much the narrative they went with. And, and to this day, that's still the one they go with. So you can see it for yourself at that event, and that's online. I'll, I'll see if I can find it and link to it in the notes to uh, the, the description section on this video. And no, Operation Snow White um, is not addressed as part of Hubbard's takeoff or leaving. That's, that's not part of the reason why Hubbard is told, you know, Scientologists are told he left. Scientologists, are they don't really talk about it. And when they did, they said that it was a big furor and a big bunch of nonsense about stealing copy paper or something. I mean, it was, they really tried to spin, spin, spin that thing in a really, really uh, bad way. I, I don't know all the specifics of it because I was seven years old when all that went down. So my living memory of it isn't that great. <laughs> but they spun it. And by the time I really got involved in Scientology as a, as a teenager and, and then became a staff member, Operation Snow White and the raid and all of that was distant history and nobody wanted to talk about it. So it's not like we sat around having gab fests about the 70s and about the GO and about how bad things had gone. We didn't talk about that stuff. That's... Uh... Okay, so there you go. TJ Feeney. I was watching a TV show recently where a CEO or some other management equivalent visits their business in disguise. It made me wonder what would happen if Miscavige or Tom Cruise visited an org in disguise and looked for services. If they were actually audited or regged for money, how would they react? I've heard before that people auditing Tom Cruise were told to finish up because he thought the session was over and they were afraid to anger him. 
I believe he wanted to leave without a floating needle and was irritated and told the auditor that it hadn't happened in time. Forgive me if I've got that totally mixed up. Would they realize just how empty and badly run Scientology really is, or do they know and just not care? All right, so yeah, the hidden celebrity, hidden CEO thing. Um, okay, um, David Miscavige and Tom Cruise are well aware of how small, tiny, and insignificant Scientology actually is. They're not so deluded that either one of them have bought into all the bullshit that there are millions and millions of Scientologists all over the world and it's this expanding religious movement that's taking over the planet. They're both in a position where they acknowledge that that is not the case and they need to handle all of these SPs in the Sea Org who aren't making it happen. And all of these dilettante public and all of these dilettante staff members, this is why they call them, this is what they talk, how they talk about them. All these guys aren't working hard enough, they're not dedicated enough, they're not ethical enough to make it go and make it fly. And they're not following Hubbard policy and blah, 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 blah. This is, this is how they talk and think to each other, at least as far as I can tell from everything I've heard and read about them. So, if they were to go into an org secretly or covertly, and it would be impossible for that to happen, by the way, there are no disguises good enough to hide David Miscavige or Tom Cruise from Scientologists. Just, just skip that, okay? That's not how that works. So, they would never, ever get away with trying to do an undercover op into an org to see how it is. But they wouldn't need to. See, every one of these orgs is already sending up exactly how they're doing. They're sending their numbers, their stats, their, their reports, their book sales, their money. They know to the penny how badly these orgs are doing. And Tom Cruise definitely has access to that information if he wants it. So when so I'll tell you what happens is instead what actually happens is when they're gonna promote or talk about Scientology, like Tom Cruise, for example, brought some of his friends or business associates or contacts to the San Francisco Church of Scientology. And and they had a, like a week or two heads up that this was happening. And they were told to get ready. And they had that place sparkling and clean from the bottom to the top. And that time when Cruz was settled to come in that day, they called everybody. You got to be on course. You got to get in session. You got to come in. We're having a tour. We're having a celebrity. We're having a VIP come around. And, and everybody's got to be here, right? And they call everybody. And they, they, they pull out all the stops to, get, to make that place look as humming and active and alive as they possibly can. And guess what? It's never good enough. <laughs> I mean, I watched this go down in PAC, too, and, and uh, at the big blue buildings. When we would have media come, if there was going to be a media story, man, it was a blitz for a week getting everybody there, right? So to schedule in for those time slots to make it look like the place was absolutely, you know, flowing over with people. So, you know, so everybody in Scientology is kind of in on this a little bit is kind of what I'm sort of trying to say here, right? To one degree or another. Some of them very grudgingly, you know, some of the public are like, oh, God, I got to come in. All right. 
you know, like they don't all show up just because they're ordered to, but a lot of them do. And they want to put the best face forward about Scientology as a, you know, in terms of its public image. So they're, so they're willing to go along with these shenanigans that they understand are PR operations in order to put Scientology in the best possible light when it comes to TV cameras or VIP review or something like that, okay? So so that's the reality of what goes on. If, okay, so now to address your question, if they were to go to an org or they were to send a person, an agent in or something, to inspect an org on the, on the sly, on the down low, then, um, of course, heads would roll is what would happen is because they'd go in and they'd, you know, the place would be empty. There wouldn't be anybody there. I mean, that's how orgs are. There's maybe 10, 15, I mean, in a big org, maybe 20 people at a time in a course room. <laughs> you know, we're not talking about places that are overflowing with people. Uh, so they would, of course, be very upset about that. And they would, that's not how things are supposed to look. That's not how things are supposed to be. And so, you know, they would almost feel obligated to have heads roll because, you know, clearly if the place is not packed and, and the course room is not full and the auditing hours aren't screamingly high, then that means that somebody is out ethics. Right? Somebody's stopping that from happening and that person needs to be found and they need to be you know, declared or gotten off the line somehow, corrected somehow, so that the place fills up, right? This is this is more the attitude of Tom Cruise and Dave Miscavige. So that's that's kind of how that goes. At least as that's my most honest response to your question. Bob Smith, I was hoping to get your insights on a matter I've often wondered about. Scientology seems to have had sales of books as a fundamental basis of its quote unquote growth strategy since its inception. However, I've observed that among Hubbard's massive literary catalog, only his dreadful science fiction seems to be available in e-book format. For example, Amazon sells most of his science fiction in both physical and electronic formats, but only offers the actual Dianetics and Scientology books in physical form. Why have e-book offerings been so limited? One must assume this is a conscious strategy concocted by Miscavige, but it seems paradoxical since the group's recruitment process so prominently focuses on read a book. Bob, you're absolutely right. And this sort of contradiction is exactly why I say that David Miscavige could care, couldn't care less about Scientology's expansion because he doesn't even think about this stuff. We assume it's a conscious strategy, but actually the last time I had a nice long chat with Jeff Hawkins about this kind of thing, you know, he suggested it might well be that Miscavige is just so goddamn stupid that he doesn't realize that ebooks are a thing and that Scientology books should be put out in ebook format. I mean, I, seriously, you wouldn't imagine that it would be that way. But keep in mind, this is the group that didn't get to CDs, to lectures on CDs, until the late 90s. I mean, early 2000s. This is, they were way late in getting to things. So it could really be that they are just so goddamn stupid that it hasn't occurred to them yet to take the books and put them in an ebook format and sell them that way. Now, if it has occurred to them and they haven't done it, then this tells you that David Miscavige just doesn't care 
to have Hubbard's books in the ebook format to get out into the world at large uh, through that channel. And that means that he just doesn't care to grow Scientology. Because you're absolutely right, Bob, that Scientology's policies on books are crystal clear. If there was one thing L. Ron Hubbard wanted his organizations doing, it was selling L. Ron Hubbard's books. And he was very, very adamant about this. Books make booms. That's the name of a policy letter. Booms meaning, you know, huge uh, expansion periods. So Hubbard was all about getting those books out there. And again, this is one of those things where he'd be sort of rolling in his grave if he knew how David Miscavige had so sabotaged uh, his organization, as Hubbard saw it, and his policies. So that's that's kind of my response to that, because it's it's one or the other. It's either Miscavige is so goddamn stupid that he doesn't realize that that's something that they should be doing, or he just doesn't care. I don't know which it is at this point. It could legit be either one. Both of them, of course, paint David Miscavige in the worst possible light as a manager, and they should, because David Miscavige is a horrible manager. There you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Johnny No Stars. On OT8, you learn that most or all of the past lives you recalled in auditing weren't even your memories. So now that they quote-unquote know that, why do they still keep auditing these on the lower levels just to tell the PC later after hundreds of thousands of dollars, oh yeah, by the way, those things never happened. Well, gee, Johnny, you don't think it would be because Scientology is a money-making scam that uses religious cloaking to hide its true intention, do you? Paul Johnson. I know you said Scientology will not completely go away anytime soon, but if it did completely fall apart, what would David Miscavige do to survive? He's proven he couldn't get a job in management because he would be physically abusive to his employees. He would be the worst manager slash director ever. Thank you for uh, mirroring my sentiments, Paul. <laughs> um, I will say that I think David Miscavige would be well suited to flipping burgers at McDonald's. And if you get that, it is an inside joke. Dave in Chicago. Has the Church of Scientology ever been implicated or strongly suspected to be behind the death of any individual that transgressed the church? Okay, Dave, thank you for this question. The two, the two incidents that come to mind here are uh, Lisa McPherson and Flo Barnett. Lisa McPherson, of course, was uh, wrongfully killed or, you know, under through mistreatment by Scientologists, starting with David Miscavige. Um, there should definitely have been indictments on that, but um, they got the medical examiner to change the cause of death to an accident, and therefore nobody was chargeable. Um, that was one of the largest travesties of, of injustice that, has, that Scientology has ever perpetuated. The next one is Flo Barnett, that it was Shelley Miscavige's mom, apparently uh, died by suicide by rifle with three shots. Don't quite see how that works at all. Um, so I definitely have questions about whether Scientology or David Miscavige were behind that, but they're just questions. Um, it was ruled a suicide, and I believe that is still the official cause of death. 
All right, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me, uh, inviting me into your home for this week. I really, really appreciate it, and I hope that you enjoyed the show. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.